Hey, I'm Maggie from Los Angeles. I'm Colin from Louisville. Hey, I'm Harry Nelson from Lebanon, Indiana. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Bootsy Collins, is one of popular music's greatest bass players. He's legendary for his contributions to James Brown and the JBs, to Parliament Funkadelic, to his own band, Bootsy's Rubber Band, and to many, many years of hits. He's the owner of one of the heaviest bass sounds in the world and one of the architects of funk. His brand new record is called The Funk Capital of the World, and he joins me now on The Sound of Young America from uh, Cincinnati. Yeah. What's going on, Jesse? How are you? I'm doing good. How about you, man? Oh, I'm doing really good, man. And, uh, you know, just getting back out here on the road and doing that thing. And uh, it's, it's coming, connecting with the people again. It's, it's a good thing. I, I want to ask you about learning to play the bass. I, I know that your uh, somewhat older brother who you played with for many, many years was a guitar player. Yeah. It, yeah. Was it that sort of classic situation where your brother got the glamour spot and you ended up playing the bass? Well, n- n- not exactly. It was kind of more like um, he played guitar and I wanted to play guitar as well. So, I started off playing guitar, but one night his bass player couldn't make a gig and I wanted to play with him so bad it didn't matter what I played, you know. I could have played drums or I could have played piano, which I had no idea how to do at the time. (laughs) I would have told him, let me do it, you know. So it really didn't matter. And uh, we did this gig um, and I was playing bass and, you know, it just felt so right when you were um when you started playing with your brother was just about when James Brown was essentially turning R&B yeah. into funk in the mid 1960s with Papa's got a brand new bag and, right. and other songs did you did you hear that on the radio and and what did you think of it when you first heard it man i thought it was the most incredible thing ever You know, because like you say, you know, um, music wasn't going that way, you know. Um, I mean, you know, you had the the rock and roll, you had the gospel, you had the blues, you had the jazz, you know. You had the soul, but you, you never heard nothing quite like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. The feeling of that record, it, it just had this rhythmic thing and it was it was simple, it was raw, and every part meant something. And it was a new bag. He named it Just Right. Ain't no drag. Papa's got a brand new bag. It's also inflected differently. I mean, for since ever and ever, R&B music had been a, a music that it, where emphases were, were on the two and four. Yeah, and this was really on the one. You know, always present. That emphasis on that one was always there. So I think that 
in itself helped change and mark the new sound. It was just incredible, man, the energy that was in it. You know, you got the the horns, you know, you got that guitar. You had the big band thing. It was a combination of things that all came together on the one. By the time it was the late 60s, you were in your late teens. Yeah. Your brother was 10 years or so into his career as a professional musician. Yeah. And psychedelic rock was happening. Yes. Yeah. And you've always said that you wanted to play bass the way that Jimi Hendrix played guitar. Yes. Yes. I wonder both how you ended up feeling that way and, and also whether your brother being uh, being almost of another generation but also being a guitarist was on the same wavelength as you well um i don't probably not um but you know that's kind of i came in at a time where jimmy was like god i mean i just felt like man this cat just not only musically but cosmically just opened the whole world up to me, you know. Um, He made me see that I could not only um, play, you know, all these wild things and all these different wild sounds that I'm hearing, he showed me that I could even dress as crazy as I wanted to. And and I always looked up to him for that. Uh, Even when I was with James Brown, sitting on the back of the bus, you know, uh, popping acid and smoking weed and listening to Jimi Hendrix, that wasn't allowed on James Brown's bus. (laughs) Man, where are you from? You know, you don't do that. But I did that and I wasn't doing it to be um, snobby or uh, take this James Brown or none of that. It was just that's what time it was. And that's where I was at. And that's where my whole heart was at. When I hear the story of you and uh, your brother and your colleagues joining the uh, joining the J- the JBs James Brown's band, yeah, it usually sounds something like James Brown was in town. He fired some guys, and you guys happened to be standing there. <laughs> and I often wonder, like, and I know what you became after that. So I feel like that must be a simplistic version of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, um, you know, James Brown had been watching us for uh, for probably a couple of years before he actually uh, uh, hired us. You know, uh, he sent us out because, you know, he recorded at King Records, which happens to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, which happens to be where we live at, you know. And uh, and so we we um, we got the opportunity to do some recordings over at King Records with um, Charles Sperling, who was an A&R guy over at King Records. King is a label that was that was really a, a classic R&B label, like the R&B that has its roots in the 50s, as opposed to, uh, you know, the R&B that, that would become soul music, but not a soul label. Yeah, because it was, it was doing country and Western jazz, I mean, gospel, you name it. I mean, 
um, uh, Sid Nathan had his hands in in all of it and under one roof. When did you first meet James Brown in person? Um, that was when they were recording. Uh, what year was that? It was they were recording uh, Lick and Stick. What year was that? That was sixty something. Um, I forget the exact year. Oh, mama, come here quick and bring that lick and stick. And when the band took a break, he he called us in, and um, our rhythm section got a chance to to play uh, lick and stick. I guess he was testing us to see, um, you know, uh, what we what we felt like with him. Could you tell it was a test at the time? Oh no, no, not at all. I didn't, you know, I didn't care what it was at the time. It was, <laughs> it it was like, man, I get the opportunity to play, you know, for James Brown. I mean, you know, the, you know, it didn't even matter what it was. You know, James Brown asked us to do this, and if we had never got to play with James Brown, that in itself probably would have been uh, enough for me at the time. It was like, it was just incredible. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the legendary funk bassist Bootsy Collins. He made a name for himself as the heart of Parliament Funkadelic, but earlier in his career, he spent about a year playing with James Brown and appeared on some of JB's most legendary recordings. Watch me! Watch me! I got it! James Brown was famous for his incredible drive and perfectionism yeah. that yeah. maybe even bordered on madness. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, uh, I think it did border on madness because every time we play a show, you know, he'd, um, he'd call us in the back room and say, uh, ah, son, you just ain't got it. Yeah. You ain't got the one. <laughs> you know, I mean, every show we had to hear this, you know, and it was like, we knew we were killing him. We knew that the people were just amazed at, you know, our sound and what was going on, you know, at the show. We knew it, you know, um, and then he would call us back and tell us that. And I didn't realize till years later that it only made me want to practice that much harder, you know, uh, us as a band it made us want to get as tight and play as tight as we possibly can so all of what he was telling us uh he was using reverse psychology on us and we we didn't have a clue you know it was more about you know this is james brown telling us this do you remember any particular times when you did some particular thing that uh, set off that part of James Brown? Uh, yeah, uh, I do remember one time that um, uh, that probably would have set anybody off <laughs> when I uh, I actually took some LSD and went on stage with him. And 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it, it was funny before I hit the stage, but, you know, <laughs> I had no idea. But see, I look back and I said, you know, what made me take acid? Let me tell you what made me take some acid. He would always call me back there and say, I know why you ain't on it. You're taking them drugs, you know. And he said, look at your eyes. Look in your eyes. I can tell, you know. And sure enough, I was taking drugs, but I wasn't taking, <laughs> I wasn't doing them on the set. You know, I wasn't, you know, before the gig, I wouldn't do them. I would wait until the gig was over, you know, when it's time to have a party, you know, getting with the chicks. I would have a blast, but I would never do it. You know, getting ready to you know, do the show, I would never do it. So we promised ourselves we would never do that. You know, And we didn't up until that point where he kept accusing me of doing it. And it's kind of like, if you're going to keep accusing me of this, I might well go ahead and do it. <laughs> and that's what he pushed me to. Um, and I went ahead and did it, you know. And it freaked me out. It, it definitely freaked him out. <laughs> you know, um, and I and to this day, I don't I do not remember what happened on stage that night. Um, I have no idea what went down, but you better believe he uh, he reminded me of um, how not on it I was. And um, it was a great time. I, I just don't recall none of it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it seems like James Brown would be terrifying enough sober. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, we wanted we wanted that discipline, so it wasn't really. Uh, I guess because I didn't have a father in the home, I guess I was looking for that. Um, and you know, in in my young adolescent kind of way, uh, it was good for me, and I felt like it was good for me. Um, although we didn't agree on a lot of things, it was just, it felt right. Just check yourself and say, yeah, you're right. They have this saying in uh, baseball that uh, winning is the best chemistry. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that part of what made you feel good about doing, uh, about working for a, you know, despotic ruler. Yeah. Was the fact that you were in a band that was yeah. Yeah. undisputedly yeah. the best and untouched even since then. And I wanted to know how to be and how how you get to be the best like that. I wanted to know that. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be a part of that, you know? I wasn't getting that from out there in the street. That part would have to come from James Brown, and I knew I, I knew who I was with, uh, even at that young age, and I wanted to get as much of it as I could. Did you get fired or did you quit? Uh, it's probably a combination of, <laughs> of the two. <laughs> I was kind of like the Mikey in the group, like get Mikey to do it. He'll do anything. Um, so with all the older band members that had families and uh, had responsibilities, I didn't have none of that. So, you know, the money issue was no issue for me, but for, for most everybody else, it was a big issue. Um, and they would get me to go in and talk to uh, Mr. Brown 
because Mr. Brown does everything you ask. And they kind of had me believe in that for a while, <laughs> you know. Um, and so they talked to me and you go in there and tell uh, uh, James Brown that we need um, 150 more dollars. Plus, we want uh, separate rooms, you know, and a few times I got away with that. You know, um, I went in and asked for more money and we got it, you know. So it, it started to feel like, wow, you can ask him anything, you know. So this one day, this one time up in uh, New York, we were at the uh, Copacabana and um, something happened. We were we were supposed to play two weeks, but we only played a week and he only paid us for half a week. <laughs> uh, something happened. And and everybody else was like, we want our other week's worth of money and this, that and the other. Go, You go in there and ask him, you tell him that if he don't give us that other week, then we walking. And me with my stupid self, I'm like, yeah, we walking, you know. Everybody with this? Yeah, everybody's with this. So they send me in there, and I tell the Godfather, I say, you know, um, you know, the band, you know, we all got together, and everybody wants, to, you know, that other week of pay. And, you know, if, if you don't give it to us, you know, we're just going to walk, you know. And he, he sit back, and he laughed for a minute. He's like, <laughs> he said, son, I know they're putting you up to this. He told me straight out. And this time I wasn't going to get away with it. He said, if, you know, if you got to, he said, son, if you got to walk, you got to walk. And so I went back and told the rest of the, uh, the, the band that exactly what he said. And the ones that, you know, didn't mean what they said, they kind of looked like they got in one corner. And the ones that was going to walk <laughs> was pretty much with me, who was the ones that really came with me. And that's where we separated that because I couldn't go back on, you know, my word. I always, that's one thing I always felt I had was my word. And I couldn't go back in there and, and suck up and say uh, we were just joking because, you know, I, I wasn't joking, you know. And he, he said, uh, if you got to go with it, you know, then you got to walk. So we walked. We got on the trailway bus and we headed straight to Cincinnati. And that was uh, and that was it. I mean, you're 19 years old. Yeah. And you yeah. just quit the JBs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After a break, I'll ask Bootsy Collins about leaving the JBs and joining up with his next band leader, George Clinton. Well, all right. George was the complete opposite. He didn't look at me strange when I started bringing pedals and hooking up the bass to it, and he, he, he wanted the experiment. It's the sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. Gift memberships available. Shipments begin December 1st with delivery before Christmas. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, Sound of Young America fans in the Los Angeles area. 
I hope you'll join us on Friday, October 14th for the Comedy Club with me and Jordan. Me and my friend Jordan Morris, co-host of Jordan, Jesse Go, will be hosting an evening of comedy at the Ice House in Pasadena. Our headliner, Mr. Mark Marin from WTF, plus other friends of Jordan, Jesse Go and MaximumFun.org. That's Friday, October 14th, this Friday, at the Ice House in Pasadena on Stage 2. You can find all the information and a ticket link on our website, MaximumFun.org. We'll see you there. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is legendary funketeer Bootsy Collins. After spending about a year with James Brown in one of the most disciplined bands in show business, he and his brother Catfish parted ways with the group. They formed a new band called The House Guests and put out a couple of singles. One of them was What's So Never the Dance. Let's dance! When did you realize that this huge sort of schism in your career, this huge breaking point, was an opportunity for you to pursue being the Jimi Hendrix of the bass guitar? <laughs> well, you know, I guess when it when it first happened, I didn't know what to think. You know, we were so messed up that you know on the ride home about man can you believe we just you know we're not playing with James Brown anymore you know we're on the way home what we're gonna tell mama you know that's like you know that was my initial thought like what am I gonna tell mama you know she she you know she just knows I'm out here just having you know a good time with James Brown I'm gonna be with James Brown this is gonna this is forever man and you're sending checks home too uh yeah yeah um for the first time in my life I mean a real check you know um and so um you know we get home and I get through that phase of it um and then you know we get straight to rehearsing you know putting the band uh back together and putting shows together and and um and so you know that part you're talking about uh, getting to the Jimi Hendrix phase of it I think kind of um, evolved as the band evolved. When we got with George Clinton, I think that was when I first realized um, I can do this now. This is the time to do this. It was in the perfect situation with the perfect uh, freak, you know, George himself, who was uh, not only behind it, that was instigating it. I gave to George any and everything that I could come up with, and he was open to accept it. And it, as a matter of fact, he wanted to see what I had to bring to the table. And so that inspired me. He allowed me to go in the studio and experiment. You know, he didn't look at me strange when I started bringing pedals and hooking up the bass to it, and he he, he wanted the experiment. You know, it was like, bring everything you got uh, because George wants it. 
So he was the whole opposite of what James Brown was. was up for the downstroke by parliament one of the first songwriting collaborations between george clinton and my guest bassist bootsy collins it seems like george clinton's great revolution was that he brought in all these brilliant brilliant players yeah Yeah. um You know, notably uh, um, among others, F- Fred Wesley from uh, the JBs. I mean, uh, Gary Scheider. Yeah, well, actually, I brought Fred and uh, Maceo, uh, you know, when I came, because when we was with James Brown, I had always spoke with Fred and, and Maceo about, would y'all play in my band once I get it together and this, that, and the other? And they said, sure, man, you know, because, you know, didn't, didn't nobody really believe it, you know. Uh, but when I got with George and I called him, and they were so sick and fed up with James Brown. They was like, we ready, man. We ready. You know, what What do you need us to do? They came straight to Detroit and they joined the mothership. It seems like the revolution really was George Clinton realized he could be the guy who could yeah. tell all of these other brilliant musicians, hey, why don't we try doing something crazy together? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? It, it wasn't even about uh, George saying hey, let's try something crazy. He already had the crazy going on. It was just giving us an outlet to be crazy. And he would allow us to do any and everything we wanted to do. And to have this kind of referee in your corner, you know, people just don't get that. You either have, no, uh, you can't do this and you can't do that. They got so many different rules and regulations that they really cut the musicians um, creativity off George was the complete opposite he was voting for your creativity he was you know he was like a, a fan of your creativity he wanted you to bring it all and he was rooting for you hit it fellas One of the things that's really amazing to me about um, P-Funk when it really got rolling in the mid-70s is that it was was so broad. Yeah. In that there were these these parliament records that were just like a a heavy, funky version, a a great radio music. And then there's these... There's these Funkadelic records that are just <laughs> insane. Right. <laughs> and you've got a group, and all the lady singers have a group, and Fred Wesley has a group, and yeah. everybody's making music together in all these different avenues. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, that was, um, I think that was more of the, the genius of George's mind, um, where he saw, um, he saw like Barry Gordy, so, but only 
it was like uh, his freak flag. He just he just flew it. Not only he flew it, he was a part of it. He was he was in it and he was encouraging it. And his whole house was was what you got. This was George's house. He had all of these different groups signed to these different major labels. These are not small labels. I mean, major label companies that George, you know, uh, hooked up and had us signed to. And that was incredible. That was Mothership Connection, Star Child from Parliament. It's the sound of young America. My guest is the bassist on that record, Bootsy Collins. One of the things that I find so impressive about the music of that era is that, you know, there are these, there are these rock musicians who are making psychedelic records, and they're making them from... You know, I think there's there's just a certain extent to which in in the rock tradition, and especially if you're white, it's just easier to do something crazy because you're yeah, you have yeah. something to fall back onto, right, right? And you have an audience that is prepared for that, yeah. And yeah. you are really stepping out into the void, <laughs> doing something lying. crazy because you you know you it, are both have sending checks home to mom and an audience that wants. That is used to something that is as as tight as uh, as tight as a drum, and yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that being the ultimate matching suits being the ultimate signifier of of we're here, we're we're together, we've yeah. got it and, under control. And you know, the other part of that is um, black people as a whole wasn't really prepared or ready for that change. Um, say, like when when Jimmy came on the scene. Uh, black people as a whole was not ready for that. You know, um, uh, that was a whole another uh, experience. Black people to take acid? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, black people to uh, to eat mouth? Oh, no. You know what mouth is, right? I don't. Oh, man. You know what, like, eating at the Y is, right? No, I don't. Okay, what about eating U-S-S-Y? Okay, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm on board. Okay. Well, that's that's a cold word we used to call mouth. Actually, we still call it mouth. So that's a secret between you and I. <laughs> so when you and I are sitting down at the restaurant somewhere and you say, um, hey, man, I got some great mouth last night. See, I'll be the only one that know what you're talking about. Well, I know my uh, my mom's. I, I I remember having a conversation with my mom's lifelong best friend, and she was telling me about going to Woodstock. Oh, and yeah. her thoughts about going to Woodstock were: I'm pretty sure I was the only black person, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I was the only person who was there to see Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> but that's pretty. That's pretty much the way you know, because because. If you look at it back in the day, we didn't realize, you know, we wasn't down with being called black either. You know, so it was a it was a point in which um, we didn't have an identity then. So it's like it was not cool 
to, you know, be so into Jimi Hendrix. It was not cool to be real freaky because black people as a whole wasn't used to that kind of stuff. You know, um, I think George and I came in at a time where we kind of made it fun. We kind of made it funny, kind of made fun of it and made it a little more lighter to bear. And I think things were changing. It's, you know, you you embrace both sides of it, the silly and the serious parts of it. And I think, you know, um, we were talking to a whole freaky side of black America that had never been talked to before in that way. Speaking of the ser- serious and the silly, um, when was the first time you put on your uh, star sunglasses and <laughs> became the Bootsy who we know as Bootsy? Wow. Um, it was in 1975. Um, um, that's when I, f- I first put them on because I stumbled aclo- across. Well, first of all, I went out looking for two things. One thing was a person to make the star base, which I call the space base, and the star glasses. I knew that I needed these things. Uh, I used to draw them all the time at school. Star glasses on the stick man, you know, and he had a a star guitar. I used to draw that all the time. I never knew it would wind up being me. Um, But when I got the opportunity, when George gave me the opportunity to to do a solo thing, I was like, man, I can't can't look like anybody else. I got to, you know, I want to see through stars. You know, I want to not only see through stars, I want to have star glasses on that, that that are like mirrors. So, when the kids look look at me in my face, they see themselves. So this was a whole concept that I kind of had dreamed up. I was on a mission because I was, you know, recording a record at this particular time uh, in 1975. I was recording a record, and I'm thinking, okay, pretty soon we're going to have to take pictures for this, and I got to have these two things that I know I need. Uh, and so our manager, George's manager, who actually wound up managing me, lived out in L.A., so I got a chance to come out to L.A. and stay for a, a couple of weeks. So in that couple of weeks, I'm fine. I'm trying to find this person that makes these star glasses. Who's going to make these star glasses? So I'm walking up and down the street broke as heck, you know, um, uh, and wanting these star glasses. So I, I happen to wind up in a place called Optique Boutique, um, and I asked them, because they had so many different weird uh, glasses. Actually, they had Elton John's glasses in the um, up in the window. And I was like, this is the place. This is the place. I went in there and started talking to the guy, and um, we got to kicking it, and he realized I was an up-and-coming uh, musician that really didn't have no money. But the idea sounded great to him, and he put it together for me for $250. Here's Bootsy's rubber band with stretching out in a rubber band. Wow. 
It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the legendary funk bassist Bootsy Collins. He was part of Parliament Funkadelic, the leader of Bootsy's rubber band, and a member of the JBs. He's also one of Cincinnati's proudest Cincinnatians. His new solo album is called The Funk Capital of the World. What's amazing to me, <laughs> every one of my questions about this time in, 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 in your career starts with what's amazing to me. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a movement that really, that really had 10 solid years. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wonder if it was hard for that to stay together when everyone was so much doing their own thing and also everyone was so high. Wow. Um, I would probably say the first, probably the first five years, it, it, it would really wasn't hard. Um, I think it, it became really hard when everybody started realizing money is being made. Um, that's when, uh, and that's usually when, you know, um, um, well, especially back in that in that time, that's when the problem really started, you know. Um, and then the other problem was George was having more fun than anybody, <laughs> you know. And um, he's supposed to be steering the ship. Yeah, he's supposed to be. You know, he's the commander of the ship, and he's acting a bigger fool than anybody, you know. Um, which was fun. It was it was funny as heck. But at the same time, wasn't nobody, you know, everybody felt like they wasn't getting paid. And I think that was the last five years of what, you, what you're talking about. I get the impression that maybe George Clinton was the kind of guy who, rather than being, rather than maliciously taking money for himself, yeah, um, yeah. he was simply operating on the principle that we should just spend whatever we need to spend to do anything that we can think of and then funk it including <laughs> including like motherships yeah. and just drugs for everybody yeah and yeah. then and, and his plan was just well we'll just try and make enough money to cover that <laughs> well you know he didn't even have a plan you know it was more like um you know back in the day um when you would come to somebody's house you know you would come in you know it was like you know, here, take, have a joint. Come on, have a seat, you know. Um, and then you would kick it. You would crack jokes. And, you know, so that's George's whole um, um, mentality. You know, it wasn't about no business. You know, he wasn't. James Brown was like uh, a businessman, you know. Uh, George didn't want to have nothing to do with the business, you know. Um, he was just out to have a good time on the mothership. He was, you know, the director, you know, he was you know, driving the mothership. He was just having a great time, you know. And as long as everybody could roll with that, then, you know, we'll all have a great time, you know. Um, and I think that was a, I think that was a great uh, opportunity and that was a great time and a great vibe that George had, um, you know. But at the same time, you know, everybody was, uh, you know, was getting hit with bills and, couldn't pay this, was getting married and having babies and the responsibility thing started kicking in. And George, you know, he's not responsible for nothing, you know, and he'll let you know that. <laughs> May you live as long as you want. 
but never want as long yeah. as you live, baby. While living in a world of freedom. You're, you've been recording regularly through your entire career. And yeah. I, I think that your new album, which is called The Funk Capital of the World, yeah. is kind of different. Uh, there's this thing called the griot, which is a, a kind of a, a, a West African tradition of of storytelling yeah. that a lot of like culture theorists point to as the source for um, a lot of African American musical culture. It's a kind of storytelling that's that's married with music. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of storytelling on this record. There's Al Sharpton talking about James Brown. There's a, there's a really great track with Samuel L. Jackson talking about growing up. Samuel, yeah. Let me drop a little knowledge about how I got from Chattanooga, Tennessee to big city, L.A. Why did you want to make that uh, the centerpiece of, of this album? Well, mainly because um, I felt like it was time to, uh, I call it spreading hope like dope. <laughs> You know, it's like, I felt like, you know, I wanted this record to be bigger than a me record. Um, and meaning uh, bigger than just me putting out a Bootsy record or a Bootsy Rubber Band um, record. I wanted it to be uh, something totally different. And I needed to get storytellers uh, because I felt it was really necessary for not only today, but the generations to come. So it will kind of point back to where I got my funk from uh, and how we grew up. I think uh, this album points to that. Um, and that's what I was really happy about doing. Bootsy, I, I have one last question I want to ask you. And I have to admit, it is a question I have uh, I, I've wanted to ask you for, gosh, I'm 30 years old, at least 20 years. Wow. Wow, I hope I can answer it. I think you can. Gee. Uh, Bootsy. Yeah. You're a superstar, right? <laughs> uh, twinkle, twinkle, bobble. Okay, Bootsy <laughs> Collins, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Oh, thank you so much. Keep that funk alive, Evan. I will, absolutely. Bootsy Collins' brand new album is called The Funk Capital of the World. You can also find him, along with many of the other greatest bass players of all time, teaching people how to play the bass guitar in the Funk University online and all around Cincinnati, Ohio, and the world. Yes, Lord. Well, thank you so much. Hook it up. I said, put some. You're a superstar, right? Take all of me. I'm
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. He also produced our AV Club segment. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. Special thanks this week to Kevin Rowinski at Cincinnati Public Radio, who engineered my talk with Bootsy Collins, or at least the Cincinnati end of it. If you have thoughts about the show that you'd rather not make public, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember, all good radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I'm Jesse Thorne.